Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Wars podcast. Today we're talking about the Kingdom of Dali. Today we continue our series on the lesser-known kingdoms and regimes that coexisted with the Song Dynasty. Other than the Mongols, I should say, who obviously weren't lesser known and deserve to be discussed in their own right and in multiple episodes. Indeed, we've already discussed the Mongols from time to time on this podcast, such as on Batu Khan's conquest of Russia and Eastern and Central Europe. So, this will be the last part of the series in which we look at the smallest and least important of the polities of the time. Least important in reality, but that does not mean that it doesn't enjoy an outsized presence in the Chinese imagination, for reasons I'll explain soon enough. If you've had the chance to travel through various Chinese provinces, particularly the more peripheral ones that might or might not have been part of China in centuries past, you may appreciate the geographical and ethnographical diversity of this very large country. And one province that, in particular, strikes the visitor both with its natural beauty and how differently it feels compared to the heartland provinces and major cities is the southwestern province of Yunnan. Yunnan, literally south of the clouds, borders Myanmar, Laos, and Vietnam, and is in many respects more like its Southeast Asian neighbors than the rest of China. And it boasts incredible cultural diversity. Visitors to Yunnan generally do not fail to visit the lovely city of Lijiang, and one who visits Lijiang cannot fail to notice the fascinating culture and the unique pictographic language of the Dongba people who live there. Visitors to Yunnan usually also get to the ancient city of Dali, with its well-preserved old town, the three historic Buddhist pagodas that loom over the cityscape, and Erhai, the lake shaped like a human year, right outside of town. Well, today our subject is Dali. Not the city, although the historic city was at the center of it all. No, today we're talking about the kingdom of Dali. Again, as we previously talked about in the last several episodes, the China of the Song period was preceded by the Tang Empire and then several decades of multiple short-lived regimes called the Five Dynasties and the Tang Kingdoms. So again, our story today really starts during the Tang Dynasty in the 8th century. During the Tang era, one of China's greatest external threats was, in fact, Tibet. 
The Tang managed its relations with Tibet through careful diplomacy, but war nonetheless broke out between the two on a number of occasions. The southwestern corner of China, the area of Yunnan, at once bordered Tibetan lands and teemed with culturally distinct non-Han races that the Han Chinese sometimes deemed barbarians. So, in 737 AD, during the reign of Emperor Xuanzong of the Tang, the Tang court decided to cultivate a buffer state in this area run by the local minority peoples that could stand between Tang China and Tibet. At this time, six different major tribes coexisted in Yunnan, and struggled against each other for power. In 738, the Tang court supported the most powerful of the six to gain dominance over all the others, and to establish the kingdom of Nanzhao. Its king received from the Tang the title of the king of Yunnan. But then the kingdom of Nanzhao actually turned around and fought the Tang. During these wars, one of Nanzhao's most important generals was a man named Duan Jianwei. After a great victory over the Tang, he even became chancellor of Nanzhao. And for the rest of Nanzhao's history, his descendants members of the Duan family, continued to serve in important positions in its government. And the Duan family was said to be of the local Bai race, even though they were simultaneously said to trace their origins to the city of Wei in northwestern China, far from Yunnan. One Qing dynasty scholar reached the conclusion that the Duans were descended from the Han Dynasty general Duan Zhong, who in the 2nd century AD defended Wei against invaders from the West. Another Qing Dynasty scholar reached the alternate conclusion that the Duans were actually descended from the Xianbei race that migrated into China. In any event, the kingdom of Nanzhao managed to chug along for over a century and a half until more or less the time when the Tang Empire itself came to an end. In 902, one of its own officers usurped the Nanzhao throne, declaring the kingdom of Changhe. For reference, the fall of the Tang and the collapse into the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms happened, as you may recall, in 906-907, so basically the same time. The Changhe Kingdom itself got usurped in much the same way in 928 and was replaced by the Kingdom of Tianxing, which lasted all of ten months and got replaced by the kingdom of Yining the following year, 929. 
By this time, the leader of the Duan clan, that we talked about a moment ago, was a general named Duan Siping. At the time of the 929 usurpation, the brother of the usurper was a man named Yang Zhao, who was really into telling a man's fortune based on his physiognomy. Yang Zhao took one look at Duan Siping and decided that he had the looks of a future monarch. And for this reason, he had to die. Duan Siping ran for his life. Meanwhile, Yang Zhao usurped his own brother, the usurper, and took the throne in 930. Duan Siping made use of his family's connections and resources in the kingdom and went to tribal leaders to seek their support. In 937, the army he raised defeated that of his old nemesis, Yang Zhao, who committed suicide. Thus ended the kingdom of Yining. And so, the prophecy that Duan Siping would one day become a king turned out to be a self-fulfilling one. He named his kingdom Dali, and his capital city came to be called by the same name as well. Then, as you no doubt recall, the Song Dynasty was established in 960. In 965, the Song conquered the later Shu, one of the last regimes of the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms. The Shu was located in what is now the province of Sichuan, which neighbors Yunnan. On this occasion, the kingdom of Dali conveyed its congratulations to the Song court. Then in 982, Dali voluntarily accepted Song suzerainty and vassal status, even though the kingdom remained independent for all practical purposes. And Zhao Kuangying, the founding emperor of the Song, declared that he had no desire to incorporate Dali into his empire. His reasoning was that the Tang had ended up wasting a whole lot of resources trying to conquer Nanjiao, and he had no wish to make the same mistake. The Song then had very little political dealings with Dali. The Song even repeatedly declined tributes sent from Dali, even though as vassal, Dali was supposed to send tributes. Actually, Dali only paid tributes to the Song on three occasions. The one thing that the Song valued from Dali was apparently its horses. The Song was instead happy to have Dali, a non-aggressive vassal state that would never try to challenge the Song court, sitting to its southwest. It meant that the Song didn't need to worry about this frontier, but could concentrate on dealing with the northern threats, which we already talked about, the Kitan Liao, the Jurchen Jing, the Tangut Kingdom to the northwest, and ultimately the Mongols. But this dearth of diplomatic relations also means that we have 
relatively little documentary records about the ins and outs of the court of Dali. We know that in 944, Duan Siping passed the throne to his son, Duan Siying, who was usurped by his brother, Duan Siliang, the following year, and became a Buddhist monk. I should add here that Buddhism became the dominant religion in Dali, and it actually became a bit of a tradition for emperors of Dali to vacate the throne in order to become monks. So, Duan Siliang was then succeeded by his son, Duan Sichong, who was succeeded in 969 by his son, Duan Shun, who was succeeded in 986 by his son, Duan Ying, who was succeeded in 1010 by his son, Duan Lian, who was succeeded in 1023 by his nephew, Duan Long, who abdicated to become a monk, and was succeeded in 1027 by his nephew, Duan Zhen, who abdicated to become a monk and was succeeded in 1041 by his grandson, Duan Su Xing, who got forced out in 1044 and was replaced by his cousin, Duan Sulian, who abdicated to become a monk and was succeeded in 1075 by his son, Duan Lian Yi. Are you still with me? Then in 1080, a Dali minister named Yang Yijin murdered his emperor. That would be the last guy we mentioned, Duan Lian Yi, and usurped the throne. But the usurpation didn't take, as it were. Another lord, Gao Sheng Tai, defeated him and placed another member of the Duan family on the throne, Duan Shou Hui. But Gao Sheng Tai still held the real power, and only a year later, he forced Duan Shou Hui, the man he just put on the throne, to abdicate and, you guessed it, become a Buddhist monk. With Duan Shou Hui gone, Gao Sheng Tai put his cousin Duan Zheng Ming on the throne. Then in 1094, Gao Sheng Tai decided that he might as well just be emperor himself. And so he forced Duan Zheng Ming also to abdicate and become a monk. Soon, though, Gao Sheng Tai saw that the tribal leaders were deeply unhappy with the displacement of the Duan family. So only two years later, as he lay dying, Gao Sheng Tai instructed his son not to try to take the throne, but to restore the Duans. So in 1096, Duan Zhengming's younger brother, Duan Zhengchun, acceded to the throne. Duan Zhengchun eventually followed the tradition and became a monk as well, passing the throne in 1108 to his son, Duan Heyu, who ruled until 1147, before also becoming a monk, passing the throne to his son, Duan Zhengxing. Duan Zhengxing then abdicated to become a monk in 1171, passing the throne to his son, Duan Zhixing. Duan Zhixing ruled until his death in 1200. But don't let the failure to abdicate to become a monk fool you. During his reign, Duan Zhixing spent all his time worshipping and praying rather than conducting affairs of state. And he spent much of his country's budget on building splendid temples 
sixty of them, to the detriment of Dali. His son, Duan Zhilian, then ruled briefly until twelve o four, followed by his brother Duan Zhixiang, who ruled until twelve thirty eight, followed by his son Duan Xiangxing. By this time, of course, the Mongol Empire was ascendant. The Jurchen Jing and the Tangut had both already fallen before the Mongols, but the Song somehow managed to hang on. The city of Xiangyang, in particular, stubbornly and famously refusing to yield. So the Mongols circled around to attack Dali first, figuring that if they took Dali, then they could attack the Song from. Another direction, hitting it in its underbelly, as it were. In 1244, Dali suffered a catastrophic defeat at the hands of the Mongols. But the Mongols then withdrew, because back in Mongolia, their great Khan Ogodai, Genghis's son, had died. Duan Xiangxing died in 1251, passing the moribund kingdom to his son, Duan Xingzhi. The next year, 1252, the Mongols returned, now under Kublai Khan. The Mongols were, of course, victorious, and they captured Duan Xingzhi in 1253, officially bringing the kingdom of Dali to an end. Although, interestingly, in practice, the Duan family continued to dominate affairs in Dali. In 1257, Kublai Khan named the erstwhile emperor of Dali to the new post of governor of Dali, and the Duan family continued to rule the area, now under Mongol auspices, throughout. The Mongol Yuan Dynasty. It was not until 1381 that the Ming Dynasty, which, led by Chinese nationalists, had overthrown Mongol rule within China, Han Chinese nationalists, I should say. It was not until then that they reconquered Yunnan from the Duan clan, that had continued to serve as administrators for the Mongols. Okay, so the truth is, most Chinese people aren't familiar with the details of the Kingdom of Dali, which, after all, was only a minor state that was largely irrelevant in the balance of power politics of the Song era. And yet, it looms large in the Chinese imagination. You may be surprised to know that the concept of The Duan Clan of Dali, Dali Duan Shi, is instantly familiar to many Chinese. You may be surprised to learn that a number of the names of the emperors that I've mentioned in such quick succession are readily recognizable by many Chinese today. Duan Zhengming, who was forced out in 1094, and his brother Duan Zhengchun. Who acceded to the throne in 1096, in particular, his son 
Duan He Yu, though probably misremembered as Duan Yu. And possibly Duan Zhi Xing, who built all those temples and died in 1200. Why do we know these names? Because, dear listeners, all these historical personages ended up as characters in several of the most popular and famous wuxia novels of the great Hong Kong novelist Jin Yong. The characters are heavily fictionalized, of course, bearing only passing resemblance to the originals. For one thing, the characters are all masters of Kung Fu. And yet, for most of us, the fictional image is what comes to mind. So we're reminded once again, if such reminder was necessary, of the power of literature. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.